0: invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25, Acts chapter 25. And this is unique in that this is the second of only two benchmark moments, really, that God uses in a significant way to providentially steer his sovereignty, to providentially steer the Apostle Paul toward Rome. The first significant moment or event was in chapter 21, verse 33, when Paul was first bound in chains by the Roman soldiers. He was about to be pummeled to death. A riot ensued. They were going to literally beat him to death, and the Romans came down and literally literally rescued him. But they bound him in chains from head to toe in his arms and his legs. He's put in chains and he's carried off by the Roman soldiers. And now he will spend the remainder of our record of the founding or planting of the Christian church in chains. He will be the prisoner of the Roman government as God uses the Roman government to protect his soul and get him to the place that God fully intends for him to go. Jesus himself, you recall, had told Paul you must go to rome paul's convinced of that but he's just a man he's just a human being like we are he just so he just doesn't know the means by which god will get him there a rather circuitous route to say the least to get him to rome he couldn't have anticipated all of these things what we see then is a full acceptance and a trust in the sovereignty of god that what christ said he will fulfill not Paul, but him. In so far as he yields to that promise of Christ that you will get to Rome. And so that's that reminder that we have to keep in the forefront of our minds, that you are literally immortal until your witness for Christ is over. See, Paul understood that. So this morning we're looking at his appeal to Caesar. So this is the second benchmark movement When Paul does this, and we'll look from the text to see just why he does it, when he does it, how he does it, to whom he does it. But this is now his fate is sealed, at least as far as Roman jurisprudence goes. He's going to necessarily, as a Roman citizen, stand before Caesar. So let's read this first 12 verses together of Acts And this is, by the way, Paul's fourth of six defenses that he's going to make. From chapter 21 to the final chapter 28, he makes six defenses. This is his fourth before Governor Festus. Let's read. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat at the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed to Caesar. You shall go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these words and this journey that we've been on with the great apostle as you are providentially maneuvering him around the Mediterranean through various Roman provinces to yield a great harvest come from the fruits of his labors. Greater extent are these fruits that the apostles are having now, greater in the extent geographically, greater in extent numerically. As he has now finished his third missionary journey, we've seen him travel to many, many cities. And we've seen him faithfully sharing the gospel, both to the Jews and to the Greeks, first to the Jews in the synagogue and then to the Greeks in that town. We've seen some who had their souls saved We've seen others who rejected Paul altogether and his message, even in some cases throwing him out of the synagogue or throwing him out of town, even in one case in Lystra, seeking to uh, kill him through stoning. So Lord, we pray that you help us now come to this place and this journey and help us to glean all that you would have us learn about this This journey that you've appointed to be in your eternal word, in the eternal record that it might find its way into our laps, into our hearings here today. The timelessness of your word, O Lord, is striking. It's very timely for us today. May we acknowledge the things that are pertinent to us. May we allow the convictions to come as they do. May we be a people here with ears to hear. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So these are the two significant ways that he's being brought to Rome. He appeals to Caesar as a citizen, a Roman citizen. He's respected by the Roman soldiers. We've seen that from the tribune, Claudius Lysias, when he was first brought up from the riot and had his life saved, to others that have observed him and he revealing his Roman citizenship when he was about to be splayed open through flogging and that saved him a good whipping when he announced that he was a Roman citizen they freed him from that and brought him down to the tribunal the next morning an informal meeting of the council which is the Sanhedrin which is the top court of the land but only the procurator, the procurator is the Roman assigned governor of the province, has the ability to make an up or down case in capital cases, cases where someone would be put to death. So it's interesting. They both have to yield to each other in a sense. The Romans have to yield to the Sanhedrin in a a way that keeps the peace. That's why you'll see not only Festus seeking to do the Jews a favor, but before him, Governor Felix, seeking to do the Jews a favor by keeping him locked up, although he knew that Paul was innocent. He was innocent of the three charges, sedition, sacrilege, sectarianism. Uh, These things could get him on the death, on the death, uh, being put to death, rather, and... He's not guilty of any of them. That's been proven. Felix knew this, but he drug his feet. You'll recall, as we finished up with Felix last week, he's the great procrastinator. So he just throws Paul in jail for two years, and he ends up getting replaced as governor. And as we turn the corner into chapter 25, he's been replaced by Festus. Felix was a former slave, you'll recall, and he was... Not a good governor, to put it mildly. He was actually very cruel. He was filled with avarice. He was hoping to sort of quietly extort money out of Paul. That's why he left him in jail. So Paul stayed imprisoned with some measure of liberty in the palace there in Caesarea. But he was able to give the gospel to both Felix and Drusilla, his wife. And so we looked at that whole situation and now we have someone new on the scene. This is, this is Festus, and Festus comes from more of, a, of nobility, but he's new on the job. He's a novice. And so he's trying to, you get the sense as you read this whole account that involves Festus that he's trying to do things by the book. He's trying to do things in a way that would please Caesar and their laws that they have for adjudicating situations. And so it's interesting how it turns out, actually. But what's more intriguing to us, perhaps, is the fact that God spends so much paper and ink, chapter 21, all the way to the end, chapter 28, on these defenses that Paul is making before various audiences. We've seen, this is our fourth one, he's down to now just making his defense really in one verse, in verse 8 of our text. I'm not guilty of any of those things. That's it. Before that, you'll recall, he was telling his whole testimony and his story. And I imagine he's getting somewhat wearied by all of that without seeing any traction toward Rome or traction toward his freedom. But he's still submitting himself to the Lord. He's still there faithfully submitting to the governing authorities. And that's impressive. He's doing it in a, such a way where he's not flagging. He's not, he's not dithering. He's not worrisome. He's not trying to work some kind of deal or angle. He simply speaks the truth to them when he's asked. He treats the authorities with respect, and he's treated with respect in return. He's given some liberty, as I said, at the palace there in Caesarea, He's got some measure of freedom there, and he's even allowed to have friends come and care for him as we see chapter 24 come to a close. But now Felix is gone. We've got a man named Festus. So it's not that we haven't gleaned important information from all of these defenses. We clearly have as we've looked at these first three or four. It will be four today. We've had helpful information about what riots look like, how they're engendered, what flames them up, as we've looked at one riot at a time. We've certainly looked at injustice. We've seen what that looks like. We've learned more about perseverance, clearly, with the Apostle Paul. He continues to persevere, despite all that's being done him. Effective techniques in apologetics and evangelism we've learned, as we've listened to him share his testimony, because... And he would adjust things while still telling the truth. Of course, in every case, he never told an untruth. But he would adjust how he presented things, given who he was standing before. When he stood before the riotous Jews, he said, let me talk to them. He said to Lysias, let me talk to them. And Lysias was impressed. Do you know Greek? Yes. And when he addresses the crowd, he addresses them in fluent Aramaic. So he's being respected and we've learned how he makes his adjustment and when he's standing before them over against when he stands before Felix, a Roman governor, or others as well. So we gleaned a lot from these defenses. We've looked for as much as we could. We've learned more, of course, about uh, the Roman judiciary and how they, how they adjudicate cases. We've learned a lot about Roman law and so on, but I think overarching, in an overarching way, we've learned the most important lesson we've learned, without question in my mind, is the sovereignty of God. It's amazing to see how he's moved the Apostle Paul from one scenario to the next, barely escaping, in some cases, with his life growing in such discouragement in Corinth where he's ready to quit, give up. And Jesus comes to him in person at night and basically says, don't stop talking. Don't give up. Keep preaching. Keep speaking. You, he could be saying, I'll add this if you allow me that license, you're my voice. My voice must never be stopped. Speak the truth to these that I love. And so he did. He carried on. He continues to carry on. We've, in these six defensive, we clearly can see that it's mainly historical narrative, though. There aren't, this isn't a doctrinal book. This isn't a book, while there are doctrines in here, it's, it's mainly a descriptive, not a prescriptive, as we've talked about in the past. I think some Some religious movements err when they read the book of Acts and think that because it's written in this historical narrative, it should be extant for today for Christianity, and that's just bad hermeneutics. So what are we to legitimately take away? We are looking at this case now in verse 1 through 12, And it carries on when it goes to Agrippa and Bernice, his consort. Uh, And we'll look at that next time. But what we're seeing, what we have seen in these defenses, and even in this one, is a classic story of good against evil, of right against wrong, of what uh, this man, this single man, how he's able to embody and represent truth. That was Jesus, wasn't it? As a matter of fact, that's one of his names, isn't it? And so it's important for us to realize this overarching principle, and that is that, and this is a point that I have in the outline for us, truth unifies. It bands together. Truth brings people together in such a unified way that it's impregnable. It will always be victorious. It's impregnable and therefore it's indestructible. And Paul understands this principle. So he knows that his job is onefold. Give gospel truth, answer the questions that are being put before you in this Roman tribunal, give them the truth without massaging it. In in your tempted flesh to control an outcome, don't do it. Answer the truth. Stand there. Be a man. And he does that. And then, all important, trust whom? God. The God who put you there. The God who could have easily kept you from this quandary, right? Trust him. He's the one who said, you will go to Rome. This is impressive. But Paul understood something that the philosopher Sophocles said many, many years before him. Truth is always the strongest argument, quote unquote. Truth is always the strongest argument. Just tell the truth. When you enter into a lie, as we're about to see, you're going to have to use other lies cobbled together to try to make something formidable enough to go up against the truth which is quite formidable because it's, it's unified in Him who is the truth. So speak the truth. That's what we do, or we're called to. We're all made one in Christ. We understand that principle. We're all one in Christ. And it's that oneness in that community of believers that gives strength to the words that He has us speak. And they're formidable. Time and truth walk hand in hand. So while it seems like the lie is prevailing, and, and typically when, the, it's interesting, isn't it, that typically truth is mentioned singularly. Think about that. Where the lie, you have to put the definite article there, it's usually what? Plural. It's it's sewn together in sort of a, <clears throat> a cobbled-together Frankenstein sort of way that falls apart easily over against the formidability of the truth. We've seen that over and over and over again to where Paul now in just in one verse, in verse 8, is saying, wrong, wrong, wrong. Why? Because it's the truth. Because it's the truth. That's your strongest argument. Because it's unified. It's formidable. We get nervous because we want to sort of usurp God's job for Him. No, I don't like where this is going, God. So we leave some truths out or we sort of massage truths a little bit so that we can manage the outcome. And that's where we err. That's where we make a big mistake. We're all made one in Christ by the unifying power of the Holy Spirit. We know that. We see that in John 16, verse 13. He's bringing us together. And it's important to acknowledge that. The truth is one, obviously, because God is what? Wait a minute. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But yet we have the Shema, don't we? In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? Three. No, he's one. A perfect unity. Is it powerful? (laughs) Oh oh my, it's so powerful. And his name is truth. So we join that collective. We're part of that formidable community when we tell the truth. I got to go before so-and-so. It could be anything from a boss to a court, whatever it happens to be. You're starting to dither over it, and that's our first mistake, right? You're thinking, I better not say this. I, I, here's what I'll say. Remember when Jesus sent out the disciples? What did he tell them to practice the gospel, memorize something? What did he say? Don't do that. The Holy Spirit will be with you. Tell the truth. Who, providentially, has you in that situation? God. See how important it is to understand that he is sovereign. And that gives us rest, right? Yeah, that gives us rest. And that's what it's intended to do if we would only trust him. Truth belongs to the Christian, therefore, by divine birthright. We've been given the truth. And we've been given, more excitingly, the ability to understand truth. It's now illuminated to us. These things are spiritually appraised, as 1 Corinthians 2 says, the, 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 the natural man can't understand them. He's dead and blind to them. Don't expect that to make sense to other people. But we stand by the truth. The truth that's been illuminated to us. That's Paul. That's what we've seen over and over and over again. It's our most, actually you could say, it's our most valuable possession. The fact that you have the truth, what would you say is your most valuable possession? I, you should see the car I have. You kidding me? That for sure. No, look at the house I have. No, look at the job I have. No, look at the wife I have. Now we're getting pretty close to some real value, right? It's truth. You have the truth. You have the truth. Speak. Speak the truth. With the truth, our faith is strengthened. And it grows. It grows by the truth. This is the truth. What was Jesus' prayer in John 17? To the Father. Lord, sanctify them. That's growth, spiritual growth. Sanctify them in what? In the truth. What is truth? past Pilate, Your word is truth. Your word is truth. This truth is truth. Is all I need, and I have to trust in that. Trust in it. But this could happen, or that could happen. Well, look what it's, look what's happening to Paul. You don't have that assurance if you try to help God with a few fabrications or leaving things out. That's you being God in your life, isn't it? You're safer letting God be God and just trust. Just trust in Him. Trust in the Lord. Right? With all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In always acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear God and shun evil. Good words, yeah? Good words indeed. Without this truth, our faith is... Weakened and begins to wither. Once the lie enters in, that's what happens. And like I said, it's typically in plurality. Augustine said, The truth is neither mine, nor his, nor another's, but belongs to us all whom God calls to partake of it. Where I found truth, there found I my God, who is, The truth itself. I depart from God himself when I begin to lie. Paul's not willing to take that risk. Nor should you and I. Right? So the truth. Someone said truth is the greatest gift of life and love is the exercise of that truth. Isn't that great? Truths are untouchable by the lie, by lies, because truth is transcendent. It transcends the cacophony of arguments made by fallen man. It remains untouched. But it's transcendent, you need to understand, not because it's in the Bible. But it's in the Bible because it's transcendent. It's the eternal, transcendent, pure and holy word of God. That's what we need to speak. That's what we need to know. In all matters adjudicated in the church, for instance, you're trying to get to the truth of the matter. Like the tribunal, in a sincere attempt, is trying to gather from Paul and from these that are assembled there as his opposers. When you do, in that church, when you seek to learn the truth of a matter in some sort of disciplined situation or whatever it is, then Christ promises in Matthew 18 that it there, if that's taking place, he will be with you. Why? Because he can't be where the truth isn't. Why? Because he is the personification of truth itself. Once the lie enters in, he's not there. It's axiomatic. You can't have it any other way. So he says, of course, in Matthew 18, 20, after he, of course, uh, enumerates the various steps of the discipline process, he ends with this. Very important in this context when you're talking about some situation that's trying to be dealt with for where two or three are gathered in my name. Well, what is his name in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth. That's his name. Whenever the Bible talks about the name of God, it's talking about all that's encompassed in who he is. All that defines him, all that characterizes our great and manifold God. For those who are gathered in my name, in this case, in this context, truth, there I am among them. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Man is at his noblest, and I think I have this in your outline for you. Man is at his noblest when he tells the truth truth-telling, shames the devil and thwarts his work. Just use the truth. You mean that's all I have? What do you mean all? What do you mean all? That's your sword. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's what you stand holding. That's how you break apart the lie itself, which, by the way is a fragment, and that's your next point. So the truth unifies and therefore is impregnable and indestructible. The lie, on the other hand, is a fragment, and therefore it's vulnerable and destructible with the truth. That's what you use for all the matters in your life. You use the truth of God's Word. cluster of lies lacks integrity. It doesn't have it. Um, They're individual. They have to be be brought together. They have to be listed and, and brought together into some kind of confluent, ugly fabrication as a whole that's presented. You're like, this is a mess. This is nothing but lies. That's what we see. Every time he goes before a tribunal, every time that he's being adjudicated at all, they have to sew lies together. In order to give them any kind of substance, they sew it together, sew them together with, with a thin, dark thread of, of, of lies, of, of malice, malicious intent. It has to be malicious intent, right? When is... Well, you remember when he pulled the pin with the, when he stood before An, Ananias, the high priest, and he got slapped in the mouth because Ananias didn't think that Paul was respecting him enough and he pulled the pin by throwing what word out there? Resurrection, that's right. And God just in his providential timing dropped that in our lap when we were celebrating Resurrection Sunday. So it's pretty amazing how he is, how he orders things. But, so you got this. When, when are the fighting Sadducees and Pharisees together? How are they brought together? They hate each other. They're fighting all the time. The Sadducees don't believe in anything supernatural. The Pharisees do. And so the Pharisees believe in a resurrection. And so Paul, all he had to say is, well, I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection. Boom. And they start fighting. What brings them together? The thin, dark thread of malicious Intent. The enemy of my enemy, the Pharisee or Sadducee could say, is my enemy. The Sadducee could say the enemy of my enemy, the Pharisee, his enemy is Paul, which is truth. It's personified in one man. This is such a Christ-like story here that we're given, telling the truth. The enemy of my enemy the Pharisees and Sadducees could say, is my enemy. So now, my former enemy is my friend in this. It's the only time we're going to find agreement. When we can sew ourselves together in a very disingenuous, isn't a strong enough word, is it? In this this collective, what's that? Nefarious. Nefarious. See, he's the word man right here. Okay, I'm clearly not. Yes, nefarious. No, that's the right word, brother. In a nefarious way, because this man must be stopped. He must stop talking. Why? You barely knew who he was. Because he speaks the truth. He speaks for Christ. And we put him to death once, and he lives. He lives in this man. He's got to die. Was there anybody around? The text doesn't say, but was there anybody around that said, whoa, slow down? What do you mean kill him? 40 of them, remember? 40 of them took a vow. We won't eat or drink until Paul is dead. Settle down. Well, that's why when you speak the truth and the truth only, you are representing Christ and the those that reject and hate him want you to stop. And that's what were up against. Now, see, because of this sort of sewing idea, that means, as some of you understand what the word ecumenism is, Not if you do ecumenism. People of, of different um, denominations or like in 1994 when we were members at uh, Grace Community Church, they came out with a document, the ECT document, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, Uh Uh-uh. That's a different gospel. Entirely different. Oh, let's just find common ground. And they take that thread and they try to sew themselves together because can't we all just get along? It sounds so noble for us to find common ground so we can just get along. So then that becomes what you value most. Is that it? You value peace at such a high premium That you'll sacrifice the truth for it? I mean the whole truth. How much are we seeking the approval of other fallen men? Ecumenism is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Jesus, you think, wow, you're you're pretty rigid on You know who was rigid? Let me quote somebody who was rigid. In Luke eleven twenty three, 23, you tell me who said this. Whoever is not with me is what? Against me. And whoever does not gather with me, what? Scatters. That's what the lie does. It pulls apart because it loses the bond of the truth of Christ that bonds together. Sure, that's Christ. Sure, that's Christ. Oh, you guys really take the Bible seriously. Yeah, don't you? There's only two categories that he leaves us here. There's only two. He doesn't give us a third one, does he? It's those who are with Christ and those who are reject Christ and the ones who reject Christ are of the lie at that point. There's only two categories. You're either of Christ or of whom? Satan, the devil. And he is what? Jesus says in John 8, 44, he clarifies who that, that being is. Father of all lies. He's the progenitor of every lie that's ever told. Why is that so abominable? Because it seeks to fracture Christ. It seeks to fragment him and split him apart so that it can't achieve what it's meant to achieve, which is speaking the truth to the point where people's souls are saved. I appreciate what my brother Charles said when he started out. It's not just about, hey, let's just preach the gospel every Sunday. That sounds really noble. And it is. But some churches, that's all they're doing. No, Christ's call is twofold. Follow me. We don't have to keep getting saved every Sunday, do we? No. But there are those who who need to know whether or not they know Christ. Is that not true? Well, of course. So of course we preach the gospel. Of course we want to do that consistently. But we don't stop there. We ha- are a people, hopefully, if you're on board with me anyway, and s- since I'm the guy you called to speak, are done playing church. Done playing with Christianity. We f- fear those who are playing at this. We fear that a group of witnesses can go to a park right down the road and 30 of the people they approach all claim to be Christians when not but a few are actively pursuing Christ. So, there's a different challenge in the buckle of the Bible belt, yeah? We need to know that. Because there's only two categories. I, I, wouldn't you hope that there'd be a third category? So we didn't have to be so intense. Not just those who are against me, or those who gather with me, or those who scatter those who are against Christ completely, where's a middle category? There's churches filled with them, friends. They're filled with them. Music is awesome. Everything's awesome. You get done, you meet them afterward. How was it? It was what? Awesome. Awesome. But ask them this, what, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> but what makes it awesome to you? Come on, be biblical counselors here. Ask them, what makes it, what makes it so awesome? I'm, I'm excited about this. Maybe I'll come down there. What makes it so... Oh, I don't know, but it was... Oh, you could, just, you could just feel it. So it's a sensory thing. I know we're a sensate culture and we're into all that and we want to feel good. Otherwise we and we can sort of tend to use that as a metric, can't we? Are sometimes where I would suggest that some of you don't go out of this place feeling so good. (laughs) But hopefully with hope and joy in your heart because God's at work. He may have his lab coat on and we don't like that. But I'm I'm done. I'm done with all that stuff. I'm done with playing at it. It won't be long and I'll stand before him. I want to, do, I want to be hard-pressed at following him. I don't want to fall behind at all. I want whatever I can to spend my time pressing on. What is he saying? Let's pray together. Let's witness together. Let's serve together. He owns my life. He saved my life. It belongs to him. It's not mine, it's his. And I'm glad because I was headed for death. Yes. A single person can make a stand for truth. How about that? You can st- That's how he stands so strong because it intrigued me. Through these defenses, I'm like, he just keeps showing up. He, st- he stands there and he doesn't waver. Well, now maybe we're... Learning how. So one guy said, truth is not determined by majority vote. Guess what? If you're in a democracy and a majority of the people are not seeking the truth, that country's in trouble. Truth. If you, you want to think about this metaphor, the lie is like a, like a desert. It's like a a parched desert. And the truth is like a railroad. It's always straight. It's always singular. Lie is always plural. It's all over the place. It's dead. It's dry. It's that railroad that goes through the desert and cuts right through, straight to glory. Paul said. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal in verse 10. Listen to what one Roman Caesar said later on. It sounds encouraging on face, but we'll, who knows? This is Marcus Aurelius, right? So he was, he was Caesar in 161 to 180 AD. So this is long after Paul. And he wrote this, If any man can convince me and bring home to me that I do not... Think or act right, gladly I will change. Would that everyone in the church said that, yeah? For I search after truth, by which man never yet was harmed. Oh, he must not have known about Paul. He had his head removed. After he meets with Caesar. But he is harmed who abideth on still in his deception and ignorance. End quote. If he meant that he never will be harmed, if he, if he meant in the long run, that would be true, wouldn't it? Let them have this life. If that expedites me to heaven and by the side of Jesus Christ. And if that's what he sees fit. See, that's Paul. He said, I'm getting to Rome. I'll get there one way or another. What should I do? Just tell the truth. Verse 1 of our text. (laughs) That was the introduction. Now, three days after Festus had arrived arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So... He succeeded Felix, as I mentioned earlier, and according to Josephus, Festus was actually more fair-minded, fair-treating of people than his predecessor Felix or uh, his uh, successor Albinus. He's only in office for two years, and he dies. That's it for Festus. So he has a short life, but it seems like he's rather fair. Nothing is known about Festus before this trial and him taking the governorship, but um, there you have it. He was left, obviously. They left Paul, or Felix left Paul, in, in, in prison, in the palace anyway, in chains, if you will, for two years. Verse 2, And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. Oh, they wanted him to bring Paul to them. And then, <clears throat> don't you love Luke, our human writer? Because they were planning to ambush an ambush to kill him. So now we know what their real motive was. And it's, we don't know if it's the same batch of 40 that took the vow, or if this is just a whole other group, or who it is, but here they go again. They have to kill him. Because they need their life accommodated the way it is. They like the way it is. We don't want truth entering in to play around with my lifestyle. I like my life now. Keep the truth away from me. I don't like people that tell the truth. Kill him. So, murder's in their heart. Hatred on this level just doesn't go away, right? So, this is two years later and they're just stewing in their hatred for this guy. Festus, no sooner, just shows up first day on the job, so to speak. He started in Caesarea. He goes to Jerusalem. You wonder if he was kind of kind of, you know, re, uh, feeling a little apprehensive about that because they didn't have such a good relationship with the Jews. But he had to go there because he knows those are the ones, to keep the Pax Romana or their peace of Rome, he has to go and make them happy. So he goes and shows up so they right away hey that guy bring him up here for trial they asked as a favor right so we know they knew that oh it would make more sense if you went down there where he's imprisoned besides that is the hub of the uh, the, the central portion of the governance for the Judean province so the world hated Christ because he embodied the truth, <clears throat> right? It's the same thing Paul's up against. The world hates Christians because we proliferate the truth. We, we are to live out the truth. And more, the more we commit ourselves to that, the more their dislike is going to turn into an utter contempt We should expect that. This world is made up of worshipers. We're a world of worshipers. That's by design. Now we're back in Genesis 1. God created man in his image and likeness, and he created mankind as a race to be worshipers. They're going to, in other words, value something so highly, that's what they worship. So every human being worships something. The question is, what do you and I value most? What do they value most? We worship what we value most, right? Idolatry shapes ideology. So if you wonder why they're so formidable, the people that have a, 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 an opposing view to Christianity, that's why. It's ideologically driven, which is engendered from their idolatry. And it comes in a variety of forms. That's why they can't even get their stories straight. What is feminism doing for the men that are coming and competing in women's sports? What are we going to do about that? That's That's a conundrum. Yeah, and there's inconsistencies and hypocrisies. Rife? Why? Because the lie is fragments. It's fragmented. And you have to really muster up some malice towards some other group in order to cobble those people together, to come up against it. That's the fact. In Jesus' day, as those who hated him are the same as those who hate us people who reject the truth and instead create their own false religion to accommodate their sinful lifestyle. And a lot of those people go by the name Christian. Well, I'm a Christian. Well, if you stay under the full ministry of the Word long enough, you'll find out. And isn't that an important question? Couldn't we consider it a magnificent dispensation of God's grace if He revealed to me however painful, that I'm not a Christian, yeah, that's called love. Amen. That's grace. Come to terms with that or drop the name. At least retain your integrity. John fifteen, eighteen to 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. How many categories are there? Two. Can't we have this middle ground where I can kind of live the way I want to and yet have one foot in here and call myself a Christian and and then live the way I want The answer to that, my friends, is a resounding no. No, you can't. But because of our pride and our inborn, our innate arrogance, that's what we insist on. Oh, go on, we're Americans. I can define my Christianity the way I want. Thank you. Why does God trifle with us? But just know this, right? So here's our principle. The more truth embraced, and embodied in the Christian, the more hatred from the world you will incur. If you've just found nothing but friendship and kumbaya, and can't we all just get along, and everybody loves you, and man, you get Christmas time, you get all kinds of Christmas cards. I get one from my mom. (laughs) I'm just kidding. The only way for a Christian to gain love and approval from the world is for us to compromise the truth somewhere by withholding it verbally, and that would be our witness, or denying it bodily. That is lifestyle. I'm going to do these things even though I know it's wrong. And you know what? If you bring it to my attention, I'm going to call you a what? It's the L word. You're a legalist. A legalist. You would call Christ a legalist? Wow. Some people are more bold than I have the nerve to be. Wow. John 15, again, in verse 23 to 24, he goes on, Jesus Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one, else had, no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated. So they've had the proof come. I'm healing people. The blind see. He told uh, the disciples of John the Baptist while John the Baptist was Herod's guest in prison, you know, is, is he the Messiah? Or go ask him. Well, tell him... If, if, the, if, the, if the works don't convince you, nothing will. That's what he's talking about here. Those who hate me, they have seen and hated both me and my Father because I and the Father are one. Unified. We're one. I like Jesus. I don't know about the Father. This is what truth does. And you know what invites you to be part of that community? For what? I want to sign on on what does it cost? What's it gonna cost me? Nothing. And yet everything. Our hearts, John Owen was right, our hearts are idle factories. What do you what do I really value most? Well, I go to church on Sunday. I pray. What would tear your life apart if it happened? Would you sin to get or sin if you couldn't get? Ask yourself those kinds of questions. I need to as well. The more Jesus proved he was from God, the more they hated him, right? And the more they hated him, the more it became necessary to kill him. I like what what Steve Lawson said. The problem with preachers today is nobody wants to kill them. <laughs> I think I've had a couple of those. So I consider that good company. If, if not, I wonder what I'm doing wrong. What am I withholding here? Did you ever, when you're reading through the Bible, you're doing your yearly read through the Bible program, did you ever, did you ever stop and go, gee whiz, another, another tragedy, another just a profoundly gut-wrenching story. I mean, where's all the good news? You get to the Gospels, of course you find good news, but my goodness, its I think we far underestimate the depths of our depravity, don't we? The wickedness of mankind. John fifteen twenty five. but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. He's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy from the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 69, verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head. This is a messianic psalm. More than the number of hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are they who would destroy me if they could cobble together enough lies to get one motivation to kill him. Yes, and they did. They did. Those who attack me with lies. What did I not steal? What I, excuse me, what I did not steal, must I now restore? The things you accuse me of. Should I restore things that are wrong of you to accuse me of? The more of God's work they see in their life coming out of your mouth and in the way you live, the more of Jesus they see in you and the more they will hate you. If you follow Jesus and live by the Spirit, your life becomes a tangible, unmistakable indictment to them. You're a walking indictment. And they could be in your church. I remember some time back, I preached on uh, what do you do when conviction comes? I'm broken, convicted. I need to follow some course to repent of this, or I don't like what he said. It really bothers me. He bothers me. I think he should go one path or the other. What do you do when conviction comes? The reason some Christians aren't hated by the world is because they embrace too much of it. John 16:8, and when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He does that two ways, one innately in The fact that they have a conscience. Every human being has a conscience, unless they're a sociopath. Romans 2.15, their thoughts either accusing or excuse them. So, So he's bringing conviction to them. They know that what they're doing is wrong, but they're going to do it anyway, innately, and also outwardly. The indictment from him comes. How? Let me say this. Through whom? Through you. Through me. The question is, am I living for Christ? The, 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 The question is, am I living in such a way and speaking words of truth in such a way that people either are convicted and want to know more or they really just don't want to be around me anymore? Is that not the question? Think about it. We'll end here today and finish next week, Lord willing. We'll prepare now for communion. But think of the sacrifice that Christ went to to make this even possible. And the fact that he lives in us by his spirit, those of us who truly do know him and are saved is remarkable. So let's prepare now for communion. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its power, its immeasurable power. When the truth is spoken, a veil, a thick veil is ripped from top to bottom. The earth is shaken. It is finished Lord thank you so much for your sacrifice thank you so much for the empty tomb that we celebrated thank you so much for the word resurrection that in him we are resurrected we have a place in eternity Lord I pray for anyone here who has measured up their lives, although maybe even claiming Christianity, seeing that their life doesn't truly comport with the life that you've called us to. And may they either take this time now to make that right with you, to confess that you, with you, to you, and to be reconciled with you, or may they let the cup pass by. Lord, thank you. Thank you is hardly enough. No, Lord, take our lives and indeed let them be consecrated, Lord, unto thee. For your glory's sake we pray. Amen.